Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Voles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Building Insight, the Glayhold Bowles podcast. I'm Pavel Lefkik, one of the associates at Glayhold Bowles. And I'm Derek Dodgson, another associate at Glayhold Bowles. Today, we're going to be talking about two updates. The first is the lifting of the essential workplace limits on construction in Ontario. The second update is about the changes to the notices to the profession. And these have changed the way that construction matters are heard in Ontario's courts. On the first topic, we're pleased to note that as of May 19, 2020, the essential workplace limits on construction, part of Ontario's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, are now fully lifted. We'd like to recap the history of the changes to construction-related workplaces on the essential list that have taken place over the last couple months. Starting April 5th, Ontario had limited the list of construction workplaces that were considered essential and allowed to remain operational. There were several categories of construction that were allowed to continue during this time. That's right, Derek. Do you want to just briefly take us through them? Sure. So the first category, and perhaps the most intuitive, was that during the pandemic, construction projects and services associated with the healthcare sector were allowed to continue, including new facilities, expansions, renovations, and conversions of spaces that could be repurposed for healthcare space. One of those projects was the Mackenzie Vaughan Hospital, which has now been under construction since 2016, reached structural completion in late 2018, but work has still been ongoing in closing the building and installing medical and support equipment. So I know another category of projects that was allowed to continue was transportation. That's right. That included projects and services required to ensure safe and reliable operations or to provide new capacity in provincial infrastructure projects, including transit, were allowed to continue. And one example of that was the Crosstown LRT project under Eglinton Avenue, which included stations and track work. And the continuance of work throughout this period actually allowed for the achievement on May 1st of the first LRV vehicle traveling through a section of tunnel along the route between maintenance and storage facility, and Keelsdale Station. Yeah, I actually saw that video, Derek, and it was pretty cool to see the train moving through the tunnel. Now, what about other areas, like industrial or residential? Well, the province allowed what they termed critical industrial projects to continue, and there's a couple subcategories within that, but generally it required where preliminary work had already been commenced, or it was for the purpose of making personal protective equipment or medical devices that could have aided in addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. One such project that was already in progress was the Nova Chemicals polyethylene plant in Sarnia, Ontario. And this project, multi-billion dollar project, was about halfway through construction when the pandemic began. And Nova had to shut down construction in March 2020 and sent the majority of its workers home. But fortunately, was able to resume construction by April 15th in line with health and safety directives, according to their press release. And for residential, I know that different categories were established for what stage of the project uh, the residential construction was in. Can you just give us a, a run through of what those categories are? Right. So originally, residential construction was allowed to continue if it met one of three criteria. And the first was 
For single-family, semi-detached, and townhome construction, if a footing permit had been granted. The second was if an above-grade structural permit had been granted for condominium, mixed-use, and other buildings. And the third was if the project involves renovations to residential properties and construction work was started before April 4th, 2020. And I know that, for example, the well, which is a big project, large mixed-use development in downtown Toronto, seem to have been continuing during the shutdown. That's right. And interestingly, the first and largest tower being built there in that development is for commercial use. So it, it does appear as though the entire purpose of the development being for mixed use does, did allow it to continue under the residential exemption at that time. Now, on April 10th, there was an addition to the essential list that allowed for projects that provide additional capacity in the processing, production, manufacturing, or distribution of food, beverage, or agricultural products, and that are to be completed before October 4th, 2020. So the idea was to allow for certain projects to continue if they would help with basically food production. Then on May 4th, another series of projects were added to the list of those deemed essential. And this included projects related to shipping and logistics, broadband, telecommunications, and digital infrastructure, any other project that supports the improved delivery of goods and services, municipal projects, colleges and universities, childcare centers, schools, and finally, site preparation, excavation, and servicing for institutional, commercial, industrial, and residential development. Now, this was followed a week later by the addition of residential construction projects where the construction project is a condominium, mixed-use, or other residential building. So this finally allows the resumption of construction of many of the high-rise residential or mixed-use condominium buildings in Toronto, for example. Right. So what we were just talking about a moment ago and the difference between, you know, was it mixed-use or, uh, you know, was a structural, an above-grade structural permit granted, that's now all been changed. Yes. So as of May 11th, Residential and mixed-use constructions uh, of any kind were allowed to continue. And now, as of May 19th, all construction projects are again allowed to continue in Ontario. So we can see that there's been a gradual broadening of the different categories of construction projects that are allowed to continue. And like you said, on May 19th, a lot of construction projects are going to be going ahead, right? Yeah, and it might be that some projects, owners, or construction companies might not resume right away for one reason or another, but it does seem as though, at least in terms of what the province is allowing, all projects should be able to continue at this time. And we'll see uh, how that gets addressed, because it's obviously been a disruption uh, that's going to have affected a lot of different projects and schedules. As uh, people listening to this podcast probably know, uh, a two-month delay to a project can have a lot of ripple impacts depending on uh, how many different trades are involved, what the long lead is for procurement or other uh, aspects of the project. Exactly, Derek, and I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more uh, projects dealing with the fallout of the shutdown, and hopefully things will uh, eventually be ramping back up and, and resuming, but... Like you said, there there are going to be some challenges in the near term to deal with. And one challenge that projects are going to be faced with is the issue of the pandemic potentially um, 
you know, coming back a second wave of cases uh, that might lead to more shutdowns again. Uh, and it might require uh, much more stringent measures to be taken on site in terms of the physical distancing of workers, uh, personal protective equipment to prevent the potential transmission of the disease. So I think that we can expect to see a lot of projects uh, that do want to continue and don't want to run the risk of being shut down again uh, to really invest in uh, various safety and personal uh, protective measures uh, to make sure that everyone working on site uh, is able to be safe, is able to avoid infection, and uh, the project can continue moving forward. So if there is a second wave, do you think the same measures are going to be re-implemented or will it look a little bit different this time? I would expect it to be similar. And again, assuming that the uh, second wave, you know, sort of hits Ontario in a similar way as the first did, I could see uh, projects being shut down where they perhaps have, you know, a certain number of workers within a given area. Um, similarly to how we're going to have restrictions on the events or gatherings beyond a certain number of people, we might see that construction projects beyond a certain number of personnel uh, in a given area might not be allowed to continue. Right. And in terms of like the actual uh, contractual basis, what do you think players in the construction industry are going to do to make sure that they address a second wave from a contractual point? Well, obviously, this pandemic took everyone by surprise. I think that people going ahead to new projects and new contracts might want to incorporate uh, a provision that sort of addresses what happens in, in this situation if it arises again. Um, there's a, you know, standard form contracts often contain force majeure provisions, which uh, some other uh, people from the firm talked about on a previous podcast. And it may be that those continue to be sufficient for what parties want to address, you know, this kind of potential situation. But you have to keep in mind uh, what something like this can do to both a project schedule and also costs in terms of uh, the standby of uh, companies, workers, uh, people who are required to be on site, keeping the site safe and secure, but not necessarily making progress on the construction. So there's a lot of different aspects to it, and it would be potentially useful for parties to confirm um, what the sort of schedule and economic implications are if there was another shutdown in you know, the coming months or years uh, related to this pandemic or another similar event that sort of shuts down supply chains and the ability to work on projects in such a large scale. Well, thanks for that, Derek. And it's very interesting. And I'm sure there's going to be different ways of, of dealing with the issue. And of course, much depends on what actually happens. Now, that was our update for the lifting of essential workplace limits on construction in Ontario. And we're also going to be talking today about the notices to the profession, which relates to the court shutdown. So as many of you know, courts in Ontario have suspended operations as of March 17th. However, since then, there have been a few updates to the way that courts have continued to operate during this time. Now, when we say courts have been suspended, what does that mean? This includes all criminal, family and civil matters that were scheduled to be heard after March 17th. And so it includes construction law matters since those fall under the civil heading. Now, of course, the court has continued to hear urgent matters. So what counts as an urgent matter? Well, 
these have been defined as urgent and time-sensitive motions where immediate and significant financial repercussions may result if there is no judicial hearing. So an example of that, and we'll be speaking briefly about that in a little bit, is motions, for example, to vacate construction liens. When financing is going to be registered on the property in a few days, and you need to go before a judge or master to make sure that any liens get vacated from title before that financing happens. So now the court has said that it will hear any other matters that it deems necessary and appropriate to hear on an urgent basis. However, the court has also said that these matters will be strictly limited. So what should people do to make sure they stay up to date on these notices? Well, of course, make sure that you take a look at the notices that have already been published and keep checking the Superior Court of Justice's website in case any other ones come out. Of course, there aren't only the uh, notices to the profession generally, but there's also specific notices for the region in which you might be bringing the motion. And there might be slight differences between the different regions as, as to how they'll hear motions. So, for example, motions in Toronto uh, that are urgent might be handled just a little bit differently than those in, say, Hamilton. One of the motions you mentioned was vacating a lien. So what's the process to undertake at this point under the current circumstances? Right. So there's a new process in which liens are going to be, quote unquote, heard electronically, meaning that you're going to submit all your motion materials via email to the court. And then it can either be a motion in writing or if it's uh, vacating a lien, then you might actually be asked to speak with a judge again over the phone or via teleconference. So I'll explain how you do that. The court is asking that parties submit a few things. One of those, of course, is the motion record. So that motion record should be in searchable PDF format. Now, what you want to do as well is you want to attach an executed consent order. That assumes, of course, that you, you are proceeding on consent. And we'll talk about truly urgent matters in just a second. The other thing that you want to enclose with your motion materials is, of course, your fiat for payment into court. And this should be in word format so the judge or master can make any changes they require. Then you attach your draft order, again, in word format so the court can make amendments if necessary. And then a copy of the security, such as the lien bond or a copy of the certified check. Now, this isn't really all that different from the materials one would submit normally to the court in hard copy, except if something's in PDF, make it searchable. And if something is in uh, required to be in word format, like the fiat or the draft order, uh, that's so that the court, you know, can make any changes. And that makes sense because it's much harder for them to do it on any PDF copies. Now, those who are familiar with vacating liens in Toronto will know that the process is a little different depending on whether an action has been commenced to perfect the lien and there's a court file already. What about if there isn't yet a court file number? Right. This is a good question, Derek. So if it's an intended lien action with no court file number, the master or the judge uh, will assign the number. Now, in practice, that means that whenever you email 
your materials to the trial coordinator, make sure that you tell the trial coordinator if you have a court file number already or if you need one. And they'll arrange for that even before it goes before the master or judge. Now, one of the other things to keep in mind is that because these materials are being delivered electronically, sometimes what you scan might not capture uh, all the, the information you need. And this is maybe a roundabout way of saying, think about what you're scanning. If you're scanning a lien bond, for example, a lien bond has a seal impressed into it that shows that it's been properly executed and authorized and it's a proper lien bond. But this seal doesn't really show up in a scan. So when you send that lien bond to the court, one of the things the court might ask you is, well, where's the seal? One way to make sure that you know the court knows you've reviewed the lien bond and that it is in fact sealed is to send a separate email stating that you, as the responsible lawyer, attest that you have reviewed the lien bonds and that the seal is on the bond. Now, apart from lien bonds, of course, it's just general practice and good idea to review anything that's been sent. So if it's a certified check, for example, that you've scanned that properly and that the court can satisfy itself that the security is in fact uh, appropriate and uh, that will go a long way to avoiding any need to resubmit materials, which if the, the motion is truly urgent, might be a bit of an issue. What happens after you've got all materials in and they are finally approved? So let's assume everything has been great. You've sent it in and it's come back. Well, now you have one copy of the issued order. You should also have an endorsement from the master or judge. And you're going to have a signed fiat and improved copy of the security. So what do you do with that? Now, the next step, as those familiar with vacating liens know, is does it need to be registered on title or not? If it does need to be registered, the court will usually provide you with specific instructions. But in case they don't, this is the general process. So you're going to take the order and you need to get it issued and entered. Now, this is a little bit different than the usual procedure in the sense that usually you go before the court, you obtain the fiat, then you go to the accountant's office to deposit the security, then you get a copy of the order and then you issue and enter that. Now, since everything's being done electronically, the process, the order of the process, I should say, is a little bit different. Now you're already going to have a copy of the order. So to register on title, you first need to issue and enter that, and then you need to take the security to the accountant's office and make sure that it's properly dealt with. In case the order doesn't need to be registered on title, then all you have to do is print everything you receive from the court or from the master's office, take the original security, and send it all to the accountant's office so that it can be entered. Of course, don't forget that once the payment into court has been made, you need to serve counsel for the lien claimant with a copy of the order and a copy of the receipt for the accountant's office to show that you've complied with the order. This isn't anything different than what you would usually do.
Now, I've talked a little bit about the different steps and how they're um, out of order, shall we say, than how things are usually dealt with. Where do you know how to draft an order to properly reflect these steps? Well, here in Toronto, at least, the master's office has provided copies of draft orders so that council can use these to submit under the new e-filing regime. So in case you don't have a copy of this order already, it is strongly recommended that you get in touch with the master's office in Toronto before you start this process. They'll provide you with a copy of the draft form of order. And then, of course, you'll fill it out and make sure that you review it carefully because it obviously sets out all the different steps that we've just talked about, which are, again, a little bit different than the way one normally vacates a lien from title. So what about urgent lien matters? Right. So I already mentioned urgent matters. And again, let's say you're trying to vacate a lien. It's Wednesday. The client calls you up and says, you know, we need to get the lien off title because financing is happening on Friday. The question that you want to ask yourself is, you know, well, is this truly urgent? Of course. And if it is, is there time to get consent? Let's say there's no consent. In that case, this would probably be an urgent matter. And I've actually vacated a lien in exactly these circumstances not too long ago. So what you want to do in the case of an urgent motion is you want to email the court in advance of submitting your motion materials because it's a good idea to give them a heads up that you're going to be bringing what is a truly urgent motion. Of course, with that, you want to also give the court the reason for the urgency. So in my case, I had a financing that was happening on Friday, and I learned from the client on Wednesday that they wanted to go ahead with this motion. Now, there wasn't time to get consent, and I was also waiting for the security to come in from the client. So on Wednesday, our office prepared the motion materials, and on Thursday morning, as the last security was arriving at our office, we went ahead and contacted the trial coordinator just to give her a heads up and to say that we would be finalizing our motion materials and submitting them in about an hour. Now, this was a good idea in retrospect because it gave the court a heads up and it allowed the trial coordinator to contact the triage judge to let him or her know that a number of motions to vacate liens were coming down. And by the time that we had finalized the materials and actually delivered them to the trial coordinator, we had a judge lined up and my motion was scheduled to be heard that afternoon. Now, this turned out to be great in the sense that we submitted our materials in the morning and then I was on a telephone call with the judge uh, just a few hours later in the afternoon. But, you know, it really depends. There might be a circumstance where, you know, a judge can only hear a motion the next day or two days from now. So it's possible that, you know, we got a hold of the court at a very favorable time. So I wouldn't rely on necessarily getting an urgent motion heard the same day or the next day. That means that even if it is urgent, you should probably try to plan ahead, get advance notice. In my case, it wasn't possible. But if you have a few days lead time, that's obviously the preferred way to go. So what happens after the motion is heard then? So in my case, the motion was just a very short telephone call with the judge. It only took about 10 minutes. 
And the judge asked me the regular questions that one might hear, for example, if you go before a master in Toronto at ex parte construction court in the mornings. Just a brief synopsis of why I was bringing the motion, you know, an explanation of what I was seeking as relief and a question about the amount of the security for costs, whether it was under the new Construction Act or whether the security for costs should be reduced because it was under the old, quote unquote, old Construction Act. So before July 2018. So once I had satisfied his honor that the order was okay, essentially uh, his honor said that he would be signing the orders electronically. So after the telephone call, I waited about an hour, an hour and a half because I had a few motions all for the same property, but they were all being heard together. And his honor had electronically signed the orders and as well had provided an endorsement for each, which authorized him to sign the orders electronically. Both of those were emailed to me through the trial coordinator. And then obviously, just like I talked about before, the process for what you do after that, again, depends on if the order needs to be issued and entered so that it can be registered on title. Or if it doesn't need to be registered on title, then you just proceed with assembling everything and sending it to the accountant's office with a copy of the original security. And how long did it take for you to get the order issued and entered? So that was another thing that actually worked out very well. So as you can imagine, if we actually had to physically get a copy of the order, print it, and then take it to be entered, then, you know, even if it's in the same jurisdiction, it could take a morning, an afternoon, a whole day. In our case, we didn't have that luxury because it was Thursday afternoon and the financing was happening the next day. Thankfully, we had asked the trial coordinator if she could put us in touch with a civil intake unit so that the order could be issued and entered on the spot. Now, there was another little complication in, in that, how do you make payment? Now, to get the order issued and entered, the civil intake unit had asked us, of course, to make a uh, payment because we had brought a number of motions. Now, this was a bit odd, I should say in retrospect, because generally in Toronto, one doesn't have to pay to vacate a lien. So you bring the motion, and although it is a motion and normally one pays to have that motion filed, in Toronto, I guess, uh, those proceed without payment. Because this was in a different jurisdiction, in Hamilton, the court had requested that we make payment for three motions that had no court file numbers. So because we couldn't arrange for payment to happen that same day, and because actually notice the profession provides that if you're going to have to pay uh, a court filing fee, you could do that later after your materials are actually filed. What we did was we provided an undertaking to the court that we would pay those costs forthwith. So that was as simple as drafting an email saying solicitors or with the heading, I should say, solicitors undertaking. And then in the body of that email, just stating that payment for the motions would be made forthwith. And once the civil intake unit received that, they were happy and they were actually uh, took our motion materials and our order, I should say, and they issued and entered it. 
So in a nutshell, that was the process for making sure that my urgent motion got heard and that the order got issued and entered and have the financing happen on Friday. Now, like I said, in retrospect, it was a bit tight. So if you have a few days lead time, it's always best to go on consent. But if you don't have that luxury, just make sure that you communicate regularly with the court. Give them a heads up. Ask the trial coordinator to put you in touch with the filing clerics to make sure that you can get the order issued and entered quickly if necessary. And then you'll be able to uh, have everything done. And if payment needs to be made, again, the way to do that is to provide an undertaking to the court that you'll be doing so. Well, that's really interesting, Pavley, and thanks for giving us an example of the challenges and different processes we have to make use of during this time. And thanks to everyone for tuning in to this episode of Building Insight. We hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.